Hello, my friends. I'm starting today's episode with an update. I'm out visiting some of our past guests in San Francisco, and I've been thinking about how grateful I am to be the host of Modern CTO. I want to thank you for listening and joining me this year as we've talked to these unbelievable leaders in technology. I am so grateful to wake up every day and bring you value. I've spoken with over 135 CTOs in the past year, both on and off the podcast, from startups to billion-dollar companies. And with this knowledge, I've learned a tremendous amount about teams, leaders, and individual contributors. The one thing that I've found to be true for everyone is that learning is not a spectator's sport. You can read all the books, listen to all the podcasts, take all the courses, and talk to the mentors, but change and experience will only take place when you take action on knowledge. This realization has spawned a new endeavor, and I've been working behind the scenes for the past two months with some amazing CTOs, and we have created LeaderBits.io, Leadership and Professional Development for Technologists. You gain experience, develop professionally, and become more valuable through weekly leadership challenges. Each challenge is designed to take 10 minutes and results in real, tangible experience. Isn't gaining experience with a specific skill much better than learning about a skill and never using it? The experiences you've gained are tracked through entries in the ReflectDB. You can track your growth and improvement over time, and you can even invite your team in to participate. To sign up, head over to leaderbits.io, or you can find us on the homepage of moderncto.io. And get excited right now, because today's guest is going to knock your socks off. Today, we are talking to Kevin Scott, the CTO of Microsoft, and we discuss the resurgence in computer architecture, his optimism when it comes to the future of AI, and Microsoft's Intelligent Edge and Intelligent Cloud Initiative. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Kevin. Hey, Joel. How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm absolutely fantastic. How about yourself? I am doing pretty okay. They decorated the office for you? No, not for me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm in uh, Microsoft's uh, Channel 9 studio space. And so uh, the room that I'm in, they, uh, they recently upgraded all of the... Uh, lighting and grip stuff in here and it looks like the uh to give it some ambiance we've got copy of windows xp home edition <laughs> 97 box uh yeah that's pretty amazing. cool yeah so i did listen in on i watched a couple things i watched this really cool hologram of you explaining the ah. intelligent edge <laughs> Yeah, that that one was interesting. I uh, I was very worried that would come off as uh, sort of overly pedantic, uh, but I, I think it was okay. No, I liked it. I really did. I thought it was like a series. Like a a series. I really enjoyed it. I was like, I want to hear Kevin Scott explain more things to me. <laughs> well, thank you. And then I read your article on LinkedIn about technical debt. And yep. it made me want a book from you. 
Yeah, I'm. Uh, I am, in fact, working on a working on a book right now. Um, that is, it's not really, uh, you know, an engineering leadership book. Uh, it's called uh, "Reprogramming the American Dream," uh, and it's about, um, like, I, I have a contrary point of view about uh, what automation and AI is going to do for all of us in the uh, in the near term, and I. And, and particularly like what uh, what impacts AI is going to have on the working class. Uh, I'm far more optimistic than everyone else is. And uh, like we've been out and about in all sorts of places. Uh, I, I went to Memphis a few weeks ago to talk to entrepreneurs there. I went back home to Campbell County, Virginia and talked to a bunch of, uh, you know, folks who are doing agriculture and, uh, you know, light manufacturing and whatnot uh and uh, it it really is uh inspiring to go out and talk to these folks uh who are using technology in all sorts of interesting ways and then imagining this world where you know like the the thing that i'm spending a bunch of my time on at microsoft right now is to make sure that um that all of this technology that can sometimes seem almost near magical isn't just a thing that is in the hands of elite engineers that we as quickly as humanly possible democratize access to it so it can just become yet another building block in the you know toolkit that we make available for people to use to create technology and i think if we do our job right it it not only isn't just you know, sort of a more democratized uh, thing in the sense that like all developers can use uh, can use artificial intelligence as well as the most highly trained uh, developers. But like, I think you can, you may see an order of magnitude more people being able to quote unquote program because, um, you know, like with, with machine learning in particular, like we may be making this transition right now from, uh, you know, this sort of paradigm where programmer stares at machine, understands all of its gnarly, uh, you know, sort of idiosyncrasies and, you know, and then has to do all of the mental uh, gymnastics that are required to transform a problem into a fairly brittle set of instructions that, you know, this machine or distributed system or, or what have you uh, has to carry out to solve the problem to this mode where we just sort of show the computer, uh, you know, like what problem we're trying to solve. And then it sort of figures out how to solve it uh, on its own. And like, I'll give you an example of that. I saw this amazing thing um, this week, a demo from uh, from a designer who was using uh, a new machine learning tool. And uh, they had a, a cistern uh, at their house to collect rainwater. And they were like, I want to like have a system that, uh, you know, tells me how many gallons of water I have in the cistern and sends an alert when it gets uh, too low. And uh, so they rigged this pulley up with a float on one end that's like inside of the cistern and like a little stick like piece of wood uh tied to the other end of the you know the rope uh thrown over the pulley and so like when the stick is uh you know sort of low that means the float is high and the cistern is more full and when the you know stick goes uh goes high the float is low which means the cistern's getting uh, empty 
And they took a bunch of pictures of this and sort of notated how full the cistern was at a bunch of different positions of the stick and then just fed it into the system. And then like it had a fairly accurate map, uh, like it was a, the, the machine learning system was able to learn a fairly accurate mapping from positions of this stick to how many gallons of water in the cistern. And so like this guy didn't write any code at all. Like he literally showed the system how to solve his problem. And like, it's completely different from how I would have approached it. Like I would have put sensors on the thing and done a bunch of math. <laughs> Uh, it's it's crazy what the next generation is going to be able to do with these technologies i was speaking with my cousin last week and the fact that her son can go online they can go on amazon and get an Arduino, a little kit and yep. start programming and do that like that would that was not possible when i was a child yeah well i mean like what you know raspberry pis for instance like again you know you go on amazon like you can pay $30 for this thing, 30, 40 bucks, uh, you know, for a current generation Raspberry Pi. And like you can plug it directly into your TV with HDMI and, you know, hook it up to like keyboard mouse. And like you've got a fully functioning Linux workstation for 40 bucks. It's, um, it's crazy. Nice. It's the future. Kevin, we're here, man. We're in the future. <laughs> we, we are. I love how you're optimistic, especially about AI. When you started talking about that, it reminded me of in the late 90s when everybody was scared that the internet or email would make the postal service not do anything or go out of business. But then it did the exact opposite because everyone started doing business and shipping stuff to each other. Yep. You know, and I think it's I think it's important not to be Pollyanna about it because it's not like there won't be disruption. But you know, the thing the thing that we have to remind ourselves of is that technology and what it does isn't some sort of predetermined outcome that like we're all forced to walk this path and whatever it does, like we sort of have to accept like whether it's good or grim. Like we get to decide what we want to do with this stuff. And so if we're optimistic. And what we want to have happen with AI is that it creates inclusiveness and opportunity and abundance, uh, then that's exactly what we will go do. Uh, and if we believe that it's going to create, you know, sort of further concentration of, uh, you know, economics and, you know, deprive people of, you know, jobs and, you know, sort of meaning in their life, then like, that's sort of what we do. Like we have to like fight against this negative, uh, negative tendency, I think, uh, which, you know, is real work on our part. Yeah. It's not, it's not the, it's not our super easy to always be optimistic, but one of the great traits of a leader is, you know, optimism and to be pragmatic, like in times of when you need to step up. Yeah, absolutely. So reprogramming the American dream, that's like next year or yeah, it's probably going to come out towards the end of next year. So there's going to be no talk in there about technical debt. Uh, actually, we'll, I'll talk a little bit about it, but it's not a, it is not uh, a book about like how to, you know, my, my take on how you should run an engineering team. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> that would be awesome. You can get in on my next book if you want. <laughs> awesome. We're, I'm calling it Everything But Code. Oh, cool. So the first book was called Modern CTO, and that's what spawned this podcast. Yep. And then the next book is I learned how to write a book because everybody, when you, so I wrote 
and then I put a book out there and everybody hears different things when they read the chapter. So it's really yeah. interesting as I was getting feedback from the writing, I was like, now I know exactly how to structure a book, what people are expecting, the type of feedback I'm going to get, the different collections of individuals and what they expect from books. So I began writing the second book, Everything But Code, and that's just about technology leadership and help the next generation up. That's really awesome. Are, are you having fun? Oh, man. I, I never thought, I, I didn't do super well in school. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ever think I liked writing because they forced us to like read the newspaper and write these things called current events. And yeah. that was my extent of writing. And so yeah. when, it, when I got into a habit of writing and started with like my 300 words a day, I started to very much enjoy it and find it an excellent medium to express myself. And now yep. it's just something, a habit I do. Yep. So you know a couple of my friends. Oh, do I? Yeah, you know Fred at SIF Science? Yes, I do. Yeah, and then you know Kit Colbert at VMware. Yes. Yeah, they're awesome people, aren't they? They're super awesome people. Are you in San Francisco or Seattle? Uh, I still live in the Silicon Valley. I, I, uh, I live in Los Gatos, okay. uh, which, which, you know, probably... Uh, topologically speaking is about as far from uh far from san francisco as it is from seattle <laughs> <laughs> given bay area traffic so what does your day look like do you travel a lot i do i uh i spend uh i spend a fair amount of time up here in redmond and uh increasingly i spend a bunch of time on the road chatting with all sorts of people all over the world who are doing different technological things, which is a big change because when I was at my startup ad mob and when I was at LinkedIn, like I rarely traveled at all. Like in fact, I, uh, my, my big joke at LinkedIn is, uh, like I did that for six years. Uh, I think I took four business trips in six years. And one of those was, uh, to, for the IPO to go, uh, ring the bell on, uh, on the New York stock exchange. Oh, that's amazing. Was it a digital bell or did you, it was like an actual bell? No, I think they actually ran a, rang a real bell. Oh, it's so exciting. It, it, you- it's, it, it's amazingly old school. Well, you want that like sort of haptic feedback. You want to be able to ring the bell. You know, you don't want to press a button. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I what's what I when I talked to Fred and heard he was on the show two weeks ago, and we got along super well. And now I'm going to fly out there and be out there next week. So I'm going to have lunch with him. I think Tuesday, so like four or five days. And what SIF Science is doing is unbelievable. Yeah, it's really great. And then I looked up, we were doing the show prep and I saw that you like, aren't just connected with him on LinkedIn. You're like involved too. Yeah. So one of the co-founders of SIF, a guy named Brandon Bollinger worked for me at Google and he's one of those guys where I've actually invested in both of his companies. And if he goes off and creates five more, I'll invest in those as well. Like they're just some of those people who are just so awesome and they have such good ideas. And like, more importantly, like they, they're just able to make stuff happen. And like Brandon is, is one of those guys. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe I'll have the chance to meet him next week. Yeah. He's, uh, he's off at another company. Uh, he's doing this, uh, thing called cardiogram right now. So they're building a system that takes EKG, 
uh, or I should say heart tick data from smartwatches and fitness bands and uh, like applies a bunch of uh, modern deep learning to the data streams that they get to try to diagnose serious cardiovascular conditions. And like they're doing, they're doing super well. I'll get a notification that says, you're going to have a heart attack in three, two. <laughs> that wouldn't yeah, be Yeah, actually, it's sort of, you know, it's better than that uh, in the sense that like a bunch of these cardiac conditions that you can have, you can recognize them in data very, very, very far in advance of when you're symptomatic. And like that, that's what we want, I think, in general with medicine, because like the problem we've got right now is like people people go to the doctor when their body is like sending them a signal that says you're sick. And like, oftentimes, you know, by that point, like, you know, you've had a bunch of biological damage done and like you, you've got sort of second order effects of whatever was, you know, sort of started your cascade failure. And it's like super expensive to get yourself back to health. And like, in some cases, like you, you know, you hit a point of no return and like you have an, an incurable condition. And so, you know, like being able to, you know, like in this world that we're increasingly living in where, you know, your body itself is more instrumented and you've got these sophisticated AI techniques that can look at this data and help to, you know, very, very early, like tell you, uh, like when you're ill, you know, so like this cardiogram stuff's one thing, like there are a bunch of folks, uh, including, you know, uh, us here at Microsoft where, you know, there are a bunch of things where you can, from a blood sample, like do a full PCR screening of like all of the biological material that's in a small vial of blood and then use that genetic information to do things like oh, like we understand like what your T-cell uh, uh, distribution is inside of your body. And, you know, like if we can learn the mapping between uh, T-cells, which are like the individual components of your immune system that fight particular diseases, uh, you know, you, you may be able to detect from a blood draw, like when you very, very, very early, like when you have cancer or like other like serious diseases. Um, so all of this stuff's like really exciting. Yeah, my brother and stepmom are both physicians, so they're always asking me about uh, like technology and giving me ideas and saying, "Hey, you, you you should make this," and I'll Google it and I'll be like, "Yeah, there's six companies funded that are making it right now. It's on its way." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but that's good. Like that's that's the thing where you want a little bit of overinvestment. Like I would rather have. Uh, I'd rather have a hot competitive marketplace in uh, in healthcare rather than you know like a hot competitive marketplace and you know some latest picture sharing thing. Right. Those are the things yeah. I want to hear about. I want to hear about the problems solved or the the problems we we're making progress on that really help us as a people, which. I'm not surprised at all that Microsoft is involved and in, in working on big picture stuff because that's what Bill Gates has chosen to spend the rest of his life doing, right? Yeah. That guy's awesome. I mean, and it's incredible. I mean, like, that's another thing. Like, you, you spend a little bit of time talking with Bill about some of the things that they're discovering. Uh, like, he gave a talk to the Microsoft does this uh, CEO summit every year where we bring, um, you know, the CEOs of a bunch of uh, big companies. Uh, and one of the things that 
Bill does every year there as he gives a little talk. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting. I like find this whole notion of like engineers and technologists being optimistic to be the funniest thing in the world because <laughs> like, I was, I was this cynical little grump when I was growing up and like, and I still am just, you know, you, you, you know, as an engineer, like your job is to like look at the world and identify everything that's broken or suboptimal uh, so that you can go fix it. And so, you know, like the, the fact that like we're able to summon any degree of optimism uh, always <laughs> strikes me funny. Um, but, you know, like Bill was talking about, you know, like they they're they are doing foundational work right now in mapping the uh, microbiome of the human gut. And like they have, you know, discovered like a bunch of really interesting things like we uh, in the developing world may no longer have a nutrition availability problem. It could be that and like this isn't universally true, but like in a bunch of places, like there is sufficient nutrition available to people. And the problem that we've got now is that. Uh, various conditions in the gut caused by the composition of your microbiome can affect nutrition absorption and like cause all sorts of, you know, sort of things like uh, growth and development issues. And so, you know, like they are hot and heavy, uh, you know, sort of pursuing both the basic research and then sort of figuring out like how you know, if these research hypotheses uh, prove to be true, like how do you go off and solve that underlying, uh, you know, gut microbiome problem so that like we can have a, you know, sort of a healthier, uh, healthier, more productive world. Was that um, when you joined Microsoft, was that your first time getting to meet Bill or had you met him before? Uh, I had never met him in person before. So uh, funny enough, I was an intern at Microsoft in 2001. And um, I went to a couple of things when I was an intern at Microsoft Research where Bill was speaking. And in fact, like one of the funny things when uh, when Microsoft bought LinkedIn, um, we were doing some sort of presentation to the Microsoft executive team. So, you know, Satya is sitting, and, you know, like we go into this room and there's a little stage and, you know, there are a couple hundred chairs and like Satya is sitting in the front row. And then like there are all of the, you know, the vice presidents of the company, like, hundred or so people. And uh, I'm up on stage, like talking about LinkedIn. And I have this moment where, wow, this all feels really, really familiar. And then I realized that I had been in that exact same room uh, 15 years prior uh, at a intern dinner that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, the company had hosted and where Bill had been on the stage in almost the same position that I was standing in, like talking oh. to the interns. I'm like, holy crap, like this is really weird. <laughs> You're giving me goosebumps, man. Yeah, it was so crazy. So Satya, yeah, I, 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 that, go ahead. that guy's transformed Microsoft, man. Yeah. Like he's done unbelievable things. I, I put out to my audience, you know, send me questions because I'm talking with the CTO of Microsoft, very excited. And I got back so much, but one of the things I got back a lot was the topic of how well Microsoft has transformed in the past you know, decade going from where they're at now to completely embracing the like open source community all the way to acquiring GitHub. That's just been like amazing. Yeah. I yeah, love I mean, it. Satya, Thank you, yeah, I guess. 
Yeah, no, I, you're entirely welcome. Uh, I, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll pass that along to Satya. Uh, I think, I think he's done an incredible job as well. I've known him for seven or eight years now. And, uh, like he's just done an extraordinary job. So are you the first CTO of Microsoft? Uh, I think technically I'm the second CTO of Microsoft. So the first was Nathan Mirvold, who was like an early, early employee. And he left in 1999. And we had folks playing, uh, you know, like arguably like the same role, but with a different title in the interim. So like there were a few people who were chief software architects of the company. So Bill played that role for a while, and then Ray Ozzy was uh, chief software architect uh, when Bill retired. Um, but yeah, I think you know, as far as like you know, if you're asking like the exact question, like I'm, I'm I think I'm the second CTO and the first one since 1999. I'm gonna say you're the first. I'm gonna say you're the first modern CTO. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So the the video that I had saw about where you were cartoonified, right? If that's a word. They were talking yeah. about the intelligent edge and the intelligent cloud. And then yep. I saw a little Google alert for myself that Microsoft Build Conference, um, you know, the CEO addressed and spoke to developers about the the edge and the cloud. And so can you give me like a child-like explanation of what this is? Is this a new direction for Microsoft? Yeah, so... Well, let, let's just talk first about where the technology is headed over the next few years. Perfect. So one of, one of the really interesting things that's happening right now is silicon is getting much more capable, particularly the type of silicon that you need to build AI models and to perform inference in real time. And so, like, it, it's really uh, crazy. I think right now, um, like when I was in when I was an undergrad and when I was in grad school in the nineties, um, you know, high performance computing was still a, you know still a thing. Like Cray was in uh, Cray was selling you know these crazy uh, crazy big computers to like all sorts of folks, and you know, like you had uh, you know like this fixation inside of the media on like who had the fastest supercomputer in the world. And, you know, like we were building bigger and bigger machines all the time. And like, there was a bunch of innovation happening both at the microprocessor level, as well as at the distributed computing level. And then, you know, we, we sort of hit this phase uh, in computer architecture where big loosely coupled like semi-reliable reliably networked uh systems of commodity computers with commodity components were the best way to solve problems i mean this is basically how the internet's been powered for the past uh you know 20 years or so um but like i we're we're seeing this like resurgence of innovation in computer architecture right now that's really incredible and like it, at least as interesting as the stuff that was happening in the late 80s and the 90s and like what what will happen very quickly over the course of the next few years is like this power in silicon is gonna get to be really cheap so uh you're gonna find it in devices that have consumer price points and 
so like that's one trend. And then this other interesting trend is that like they're just more devices in general connected to the internet every day. So, you know, like sort of pick your study, like the Gartner, uh, Gartner one is sort of interesting in that their data predicts that we're going to get to somewhere on the order of 20 billion IOT devices by 2020. Um, oh, man. You know, which is more or less double from where we're at right now. And so, you know, like if you think about that, like we've got a billion, you know, PCs, you know, two and a half billion smartphones. And like we, we'll very shortly, like in fairly early days, have 20 billion uh, IOT devices, which because of this, you know, interesting AI silicon trend are going to be sort of smart devices. Um, and then you've got like, because of, you know, these smart devices, you know, IOT has been this like weird thing for a while in that, you know, when you want your IOT devices to do something, uh, you know, do something in the world, you have to go instrument the world. So like you, it's very expensive, you know, like if you wanted to build, uh, you know, like an IOT irrigation system, for instance, to help you manage how much water you're dispensing on a crop, like you'd have to go put hygrometers in the field and, you know, do all sorts of, you know, like all sorts of things. Right. But, you know, perception capability that, um, the, this AI Silicon is going to give device like relatively cheap devices means that computer vision can solve a bunch of these instrumentation problems. So instead of like instrumenting the field, like you just point a camera at it or fly a camera over, over the field and, then you use a model to, you know, sort of build a hydrology model of the field, you know, so like that's super interesting. Um, and, and, you know, so, you know, if you think about like how things are playing out right now, like most IOT devices, so like these things live on the edge, uh, like the very, very edge of your network. Like they're the things that like directly touch, uh, touch human beings or like touch the physical world they um most of them are like these vertically integrated systems so like somebody's had to build something from scratch like whether it's your home automation system controller or your uh you know like your your thermos smart thermostat or your intelligent speaker or you know like the you know the smart system that's in your refrigerator so like all of these things you know like uh Somebody had to decide, like, I'm going to build this into my product and like, you know, like I got to pick the, you know, the, the, the device form factor and like, I got to pick my peripherals. I got to pick my operating system. I've got to like, you know, sort of integrate all this stuff together. And then I'm going to, you know, like have this bespoke software stack that I'm going to build to, you know, implement my application and then to, you know, manage its ongoing operation in the customer's environment. And it, it's, like all of this stuff is going to sort of collide in like a really messy way unless we, the tech industry, uh, come in to like provide the, you know, the software stack for this new world that is emerging. The, the world's emerging, like whether, you know, whether we want it to or not, like this is just sort of what's happening. Right. And so like it, we we have to figure out like how to make these systems like fundamentally more secure. We have to figure out how to make developing these systems more accessible to programmers. Like we have to make sure that the capabilities that get built into these devices are more useful to customers. And so like, that's, 
you know, sort of the far and away, not the short uh, <laughs> explanation for the intelligent edge, but like this is this is you know the the label that we put on this phenomenon, and like we're we Microsoft are actively uh, doing research and uh, you know and like in selling a whole bunch of products like into this space right now to like help solve the set of problems that are going to emerge over the next several years is this ecosystem uh, becomes uh, more and more populated with more and more uh, compute and AI and, you know, sensor capability. Yeah, it's smart. I mean, I'm always a fan of the business model of, you know, building the the underlying technology or developing the standard, right? Because if you develop the standard, that's, you're solving the big problem and people will adopt it. And is that a way for me to look at the intelligent edge as sort of like an IOT standard way of interacting with devices? Yeah. I mean, so I, I think it's going to be a bunch of different things, but like, so for instance, one of the things that I think this ecosystem needs is like, you need an intelligent edge runtime because the things that an intelligent edge application needs to do is probably going to be relatively consistent across a broad range of applications. And so rather than have, everyone write the same thing, you know, over and over again, like, let's, you know, let's provide this thing, let's make it open source, like, make it as generally useful as possible. Uh, and like, this might power something like a brand new event loop for doing software development, you know, like mm -hmm. the traditional event loops are like, wait until the key is pressed or wait until somebody clicks a mouse. And like the new event loop might be, you know, like uh, streams of data being exchanged between nodes in your edge network at where you are doing inference in real time over these streams. And then the events are the inferred, uh, you know, sort of inferred events across this raw sensor data. So it might be, oh, I just recognized a person or I just detected a speech intent or, you know, like I, I've, you know, detected a gesture or a policy violation or, like there's just a whole new rich layer of semantic events that you might architect your application around. And for some of these things, like you shouldn't have to build your own model for doing this stuff for like speech recognition and object recognition and a bunch of other stuff. Like the runtime just ought to provide these for you. So you're right. not having to worry about like, oh crap, I got to go find the data and train the model or like find some pre-trained model and hope that it, you know, like, no, that should be in the runtime. Yeah, you don't want the project to be creating the feature, right? You want to just grab the feature and then apply it and solve bigger problems. Correct. Yeah, we want the engineers to like, you know, solve the problem beautifully for their customers and like let the let the runtime, let the infrastructure sort out the, you know, sort of tedious repetitive bits. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing a lot of this low code movement. Have you been hearing about that? No, actually not. So about it. I've had a couple, <laughs> I have a junior understanding of it, but I've had a couple of guests in the, in the past week or so, and they've been a part of these low code companies and I had them explain it a little bit to me, but essentially it's, there's such a shortage of developers. They're building yep. these really sophisticated softwares that allow just generally intelligent people to build out basic business process applications. Yep. Yeah. And I saw that, you know, my conversation with them was I saw this happening, you know, 15 years ago with these basic 
uh, interfaces that would allow you to write code a little bit easier by structuring yep. components. And I'm like, well, this is just the way more advanced version of that. It was very smart. Yeah, I look, and it's totally unsurprising. Like the the tech industry itself is growing at a crazy clip, which you know sort of hoovers up more and more developers. Uh, and like the interesting thing, like we we looked at the LinkedIn data a couple of weeks ago, right before the GitHub announcement, and you know like the the data in LinkedIn shows that the number of developers uh, outside of tech is growing at a strong double digit percentage and faster than the number of developers uh, than the rate of, you know, new developers coming into the tech industry itself. And so like, it's just, just sort of crazy. Like the non-tech companies and like, you know, so Mark Andreessen like predicted this, uh, you know, years ago, uh, like every company is becoming a tech company. Like, development is becoming a core part of how you do your business, like across all types of businesses. And like, there just aren't enough developers in the world to satisfy all of that demand. So like, it doesn't surprise me the least little bit that you're starting to see these companies where folks are like trying to build high tech without needing as many developers. Yeah. That's one of the, recurring topics that comes up on the show is when the companies get into that sweet spot of 30 to 50 engineers where they, you know, they started out as like eight or one yeah. core team. When they get to that 30 to 50 and they start having the teams of teams issue, then it becomes uh, how do we convert our subject matter experts or our, you know, lead engineers to be leaders in the sense that they can run a team or a team of teams. And so that, tends to be a shortage that's also occurring in the industry yeah. is getting people out of the subject matter expert and into the leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why the podcast has done pretty well. <laughs> people come on here, they're <laughs> like, let's listen to the CTOs and see what type of leadership information they have. I'm excited <laughs> because uh, you, my friend, you have a podcast starting and I am your first subscriber. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. You have a fan. Yeah. We, uh, we're, I think we're going to have our first episode go live on June the 26th. So the podcast is called Behind the Tech. And the basic idea is I'm going to talk to really interesting people who are doing, you know, doing great things in tech. And, you know, in some cases who've had long careers of doing um, really interesting things in tech who in a whole bunch of different ways have had enormous impact on their lives, but like they tend to not be the people that get mainstream media attention or the same flavor of hero worship that, you know, maybe a, like a, a founder or, you know, a successful entrepreneur might. Oh, yeah. um, and, and it's not like I, like I love, love founders to death. Uh, like many of, uh, many of my uh, very dearest friends are founders, but uh, you know, we, we also have people like uh, Anders Heilsberg, who is uh, the the subject of my first podcast, who, uh, you know, perhaps wrote the very first integrated development environment what? when he was in school and went on to join Borland and he built Turbo Pascal and Delphi and 
uh, like a bunch of their like really awesome developer tools and then came to Microsoft and was the language designer for C Sharp and was the principal architect for the C Sharp language for many years and who now is uh, the, the lead on TypeScript. And, you know, like this guy, like for me, like I, I chose him as the, the first guest because uh, the first computer science class that I took, like the real class I I got lucky when I was a senior in high school and got into this um, thing called the Central Virginia Governor's School for Science and Technology, which is in Lynchburg, Virginia. Like they took two kids from each of the local high schools and, you know, I don't, I don't, like it's a three or four county uh, area. And uh, I went there when I was a senior and I took a real computer science class and they taught it in Turbo Pascal 5.5, which oh. Anders wrote. And it like literally changed my life. Like, I don't know that I would have had a career in tech if it hadn't been for this thing that Anders made. And, you know, like that, that to me is like worthy of admiration because he did the same thing for like hundreds of thousands of other developers who use his tools to make a huge range of products, you know, from the, you know, the payroll application that I wrote in Turbo Pascal 5.5 for my dad's uh, construction company <laughs> as soon as I figured out like how to do something like that to, you know, like big systems that, you know, you know, generated tons of revenue and like had impact on tons of customers. So that that is going to be the flavor of the the podcast. Oh, that's awesome. I have a, a recommendation for you. So there's this guy named Mitch Van Dyne. He did the, uh, he came on my show because he's, uh, well, he listened to the show and we, we became friends and he came on and we started talking and I find out like halfway through the episode that he was responsible for doing the acceleration of the mouse. Like when, as you move the, the mouse moves faster, right? With your, yeah. So he wrote the formula for the mouse acceleration. That's so great. Yeah. Like, so, so like stuff like that, that, you know, you just don't hear about all that often. Like that's, those are the amazing things that make our tech world work. Yeah, he was a uh, he was at Xerox in the eighties, and nope. they he was just working on a project, so he didn't know what to do. So he grabbed a giant book and started flipping through documentation. Came across oh, here's the mouse. I can do something with it. Wrote a little program to move invert the mouse and installed it on everyone's computer overnight. And then they all came in and their mouths were inverted, and he got in trouble for you know like as like a joke. And then he dug a little deeper and played with the technology a little bit more. And then he's like, I want the mouse to move faster. You know, Xerox in the eighties, just think about like how long it would take you to get the mouse across the screen. <laughs> yep. So, so yeah, cool. he's a real cool guy. Thank you so much for coming on and hanging out with us. I do have one last question if that's okay. Yeah, it's totally okay. Okay. Are you a fan of Elon Musk? I, I am. I admire, uh, I admire Elon a lot. I mean, there aren't, aren't many folks who can go off and create a space company and a payments company and a company <laughs> that like solves, uh, maybe we'll solve a, both a transportation and an energy uh, crisis that we have. So, so, so yeah. let's say, let's say that he creates a time machine, right? Yep. He invites you over, you jump in the time machine, you get to go back 10 years and give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be? I, that's a super interesting question. Um, and, 
So I have learned a ton of painful lessons over the years, and I think most of them, uh, like I wouldn't want a shortcut because the process of learning them has been just as valuable as the lesson itself. But but there are a few things that, you know, like that I would uh, I give myself some advice on. Like one is, and, and like you know may, maybe this would have been more useful like. 15 or 20 years ago than 10 years ago. But like, I've had a number of points in my career where folks told me that I needed to be more patient. And it sort of sounds like a reasonable thing. Like you should be patient. Like, you know, you you don't need to run around like you got your hair on fire if you have hair uh, all the time. But like, I, I think I would have advised my younger self to like ask the, you know, sort of the, the, the question or like try to get to why it is that the person's asking me to be patient, you know? So like sometimes people like, especially like when you're thinking about like a career development conversation, like you want to be promoted, like you, you know, like you want somebody to give you the, the next uh, degree of responsibility or whatnot. And they tell you you're patient. Like, it's just not actionable. Like there's, there's nothing to do, uh, you know, with that other than wait around. And like, that's not a productive use of your time. And, you know, like sometimes people are telling you that just because they're being lazy. And sometimes they tell you that because, you know, they're waiting for you to ask, uh, ask the, you know, the next question about like, what, you know, really should I be doing while I'm being patient to make myself more ready for this next thing. And sometimes they're just stalling because they've got a problem that they're trying to solve. Like, I can't give you this job because it's going to piss off like these other people. <laughs> and that's, that's not your problem. That's theirs. And, and it's a real problem, but like, they should just tell you <laughs> up front, uh, you know, like why they're asking you to wait rather than like, have you walk around being frustrated. I so agree. like, I, you know, like that would be the advice to my younger self is like, don't just accept, be patient as a, uh, you know, sort of a prescription for how you should behave. <laughs> I like it. That's great advice. Awesome. Kevin, dude, we did it. We made a podcast together. <laughs> it's been a ton of fun. <laughs> yeah. And and now it's complete. It's It's been just the most amazing time ever with you. I'm out in San Francisco next week, but it looks like you're traveling. So I'm going to have some lunch with Fred at SIF Science and let you know how that goes and see all those great people out there. But if I'm ever around and, and you're around in the same town, I would love to see the uh, Microsoft offices, you know, take a look inside the empire. I'm super interested personally in HoloLens. I'm going to get one the next time I can get my hands on one so I can program up on it a little bit in awesome. my free time. But yeah, it would be really cool yeah. to, to shake your hand, say hello, and, and see what you're working on in person if, um, if our travel schedules ever collide. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when you're in town, let us know. Like we, my somebody on my team at the very least would be more than happy to give you a tour of Microsoft, even if I'm not in town. But I would love to. I'd love to meet you. And maybe go grab a coffee or lunch. Sure. Your your team, by the way, interacting like I have my Jackie and my Jake interacting with your team. Nothing but the most beautiful, amazing things to say. It's been an absolute pleasure interacting with Microsoft from the from the moment I reached out and until we've wrapped up this podcast. It's just been awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure they will, will be happy to hear it. If you ever need anything at all, anything at all, just let me know, send me an email, reach out and I'll be there, whatever you need. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. And, and vice versa. Don't hesitate to reach out to us if you need something. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kevin. All right. Talk to you soon. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.